Chapter 9 of Black Amazon of Mars by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 9 Across the glowing ice of the valley Stark went at a stumbling run that grew swifter and more sure as his cold-numbed body began to regain its functions. And behind him, pouring out of the tower to watch, came the Shining Ones. They followed after him, gliding lightly. He could sense their excitement, the cold, strange ecstasy of triumph. He knew that already they were thinking of the great towers of stone rising again above the Norlands, the crystal cities still and beautiful under the ice, all vestige of the ugly citadels of man gone and forgotten. The seven spoke once more, a warning. If you turn toward us with the sword, the woman and the man will die, and you will die as well, for neither you nor any other can now use the sword as a weapon of offence. Stark ran on. He was thinking then only of Chara, with the frost crystals gleaming on her marble flesh and her eyes full of mute torment. The cairn loomed up ahead, dark and high. It seemed to Stark that the brooding figure of Ban Cruach watched him coming, with those shadowed eyes beneath the rusty helm. The great sword blazed between those dead, frozen hands. The ice-folk had slowed their forward rush. They stopped and waited, well back from the cairn. Stark reached the edge of tumbled rock. He felt the first warm flare of the force-waves in his blood, and slowly the chill began to creep out from his bones. He climbed, scrambling upward over the rough stones of the cairn. Abruptly, then, at Bancarach's feet, he slipped and fell. For a second, it seemed that he could not move. His back was turned toward the ice-folk. His body was bent forward, and, shielded so, his hands worked with feverish speed. From his cloak he tore a strip of cloth. From the iron boss he took the glittering lens, the talisman of Bancarach. Stark laid the lens against his brow and bound it on. The remembered shock, the flood and sweep of memories that were not his own, the mind of Ban Cruach thundering its warning, its hard-won knowledge of an ancient, epic war. He opened his own mind wide to receive those memories. Before he had fought against them. Now he knew that they were his one small chance in this swift gamble with death. Two things only of his own he kept firm in that staggering tide of another man's memories. Two names, Chara and Balin. He rose up again, and now his face had a strange look, a curious duality. The features had not changed, but somehow the lines of the flesh had altered subtly, so that it was almost as though the old unconquerable king himself had risen again in battle. He mounted the last step or two and stood before Bancroach. A shudder ran through him, a sort of gathering and settling of the flesh, as though Stark's being had accepted the stranger within it. His eyes, cold and pale as the very ice that sheathed the valley, burned with a cruel light. He reached and took the sword out of the frozen hands of Bancroach. As though it were his own, he knew the secret of the metal rings that bound its hilt below the ball of crystal. The savage throb of the invisible radiation beat in his quickening flesh. He was warm again, 
his blood running swiftly, his muscles sure and strong. He touched the rings and turned them. The fan-shaped aura of force that had closed the gates of death narrowed in, and as it narrowed, it leaped up from the blade of the sword in a tongue of pale fire, faintly shimmering, made visible now by the full focus of its strength. Stark felt the wave of horror bursting from the minds of the ice folk as they perceived what he had done, and he laughed. His bitter laughter rang harsh across the valley as he turned to face them, and he heard in his brain the shuddering, silent shriek that went up from all that gathered company. Von Cruach! Von Cruach has returned! They had touched his mind. They knew. He laughed again and swept the sword in a flashing arc and watched the long bright blade of force strike out more terrible than steel against the rainbow bodies of the shining ones they fell like flowers under a scythe they fell and all across the ice the ones who were yet untouched turned about in their hundreds and fled back toward the tower Stark came leaping down the cairn, the talisman of Bancroach bound upon his brow, the sword of Bancroach blazing in his hand. He swung that awful blade as he ran. The force beam that sprang from it cut through the press of creatures fleeing before him, hampered by their own numbers as they crowded back to the archway. He had only a few short seconds to do what he had to do. Rushing with great strides across the ice, spurning the withered bodies of the dead, and then from the glooming darkness that hovered around the tower of stone the black cold beam struck down like a coiling whip it lashed him the deadly numbness invaded the cells of his flesh ached in the marrow of his bones the bright force of the sword battled the chill invaders and a corrosive agony tore at stark's inner body where the antipathetic radiations waged war his steps faltered he gave one hoarse cry of pain, and then his limbs failed, and he went heavily to his knees. Instinct only made him cling to the sword. Waves of blinding anguish racked him. The coiling lash of darkness encircled him, and its touch was the abysmal cold of outer space, striking deep into his heart. Hold the sword close. Hold it closer like a shield. The pain is great, but I will not die unless I drop the sword. Bancroach the mighty had fought this fight before. Stark raised the sword again, close against his body. The fierce pulse of its brightness drove back the cold, not far, for the freezing touch was very strong, but far enough so that he could rise again and stagger on. The dark force of the tower writhed and licked about him. He could not escape it. He slashed it in a blind fury with the blazing sword, and where the forces met, a flicker of lightning leaped in the air, but it would not be beaten back. He screamed at it, a raging cat cry that was all stark, all primitive fury at the necessity of pain, and he forced himself to run to drag his tortured body faster across the ice. Because Chara is dying, because the dark cold wants me to stop. The ice folk jammed and surged against the doorway in a panic hurry to take refuge far below in their many-leveled city. He raged at them, too. They were part of the cold, part of the pain. Because of them, Chara and Balin were dying. 
he sent the blade of force lancing among them, his hatred rising full tide to join the hatred of Bantruach that lodged in his mind. Stab and cut and slash with the long terrible beam of brightness, they fell and fell the hideous shining folk, and Stark sent the light of Bantruach's weapon sweeping through the tower itself, through the openings that were like windows in the stone. Again and again, stabbing through those open slits as he ran, and suddenly the dark beam of force ceased to move. He tore out of it, and it did not follow him, remaining stationary as though fastened to the ice. The battle of forces left his flesh. The pain was gone. He sped on to the tower. He was close now. The withered bodies lay in heaps before the arch. The last of the ice folk had forced their way inside. Holding the sword level like a lance, Stark leaped in through the arch into the tower. The shining ones were dead, where the destroying warmth had touched them. The flying spiral ribbons of ice were swept clean of them, the arching bridges and the galleries of that upper part of the tower. They were dead along the ledge, under the control bank. They were dead across the mechanism that spun the frosty doom around Chara and Balin. The whirling disk still hummed. Below, in that stupendous well, the crowding ice-folk made a seething pattern of color on the narrow ways. But Stark turned his back on them and ran along the ledge, and in him was the heavy knowledge that he had come too late. The frost had thickened around Chara and Balin. It encrusted them like stiffened lace, and now their flesh was overlaid with a diamond shell of ice. Surely they could not live. He raised the sword to smite down at the whirring disk, to smash it. But there was no need. When the full force of that concentered beam struck it, meeting the force of shadow that it held, there was a violent flare of light and a shattering of crystal. The mechanism was silent. The glooming veil was gone from around the ice-shelled man and woman. Stark forgot the creatures in the shaft below him. He turned the blazing sword full upon Chara and Balin. It would not affect the thin covering of ice. If the woman and the man were dead, it would not affect their flesh any more than it had Bancaracha's. But if they lived, if there was still a spark, a flicker beneath that frozen mail, the radiation would touch their blood with warmth, start again the pulse of life in their bodies. He waited, watching Chara's face. It was still as marble and as white. Something, instinct, or the warning mind of Bancruach that had learned a million years ago to beware the creatures of the ice, made him glance behind him. Stealthy, swift, and silent, up the winding ways they came. They had guessed that he had forgotten them in his anxiety. The sword was turned away from them now, and if they could take him from behind, stun him with the chill force of the scepter-like rods they carried. He slashed them with the sword. He saw the flickering beam go down and down the shaft, saw the bodies fall like drops of rain, rebounding here and there from the flying spans and carrying the living with them. He thought of the many levels of the city. He thought of all the countless thousands that must inhabit them. He could hold them off in the shaft as long as he wished, if he had no other need for the sword. But he knew that as soon as he turned his back they would be upon him again, and if he should once fall. He could not spare a moment, or a chance. He looked at Chara, not knowing what to do, 
and it seemed to him that the sheathing frost had melted just a little around her face. Desperately he struck down again at the creatures in the shaft, and then the answer came to him. He dropped the sword. The squat round mechanism was beside him, with its broken crystal wheel. He picked it up. It was heavy. It would have been very heavy for two men to lift, but Stark was a driven man. Grunting, swaying with the effort, he lifted it and let it fall, out and down. Like a thunderbolt it struck among those slender bridges, the spider-web of icy strands that spanned the shaft. Stark watched it go, and listened to the brittle snapping of the ice, the final crashing of a million shards at the bottom far below. He smiled, and turned again to Chara, picking up the sword. It was hours later. Stark walked across the glowing ice of the valley toward the cairn. The sword of Bankaraj hung at his side. He had taken the talisman and replaced it in the boss, and he was himself again. Chara and Balin walked beside him. The color had come back into their faces, but faintly, and they were still weak enough to be glad of Stark's hands to steady them. At the foot of the cairn they stopped, and Stark mounted it alone. He looked for a long moment into the face of Ban Kruach. Then he took the sword and carefully turned the rings upon it so that the radiation spread out, as it had before, to close the gates of death. Almost reverently he replaced the sword in Ban Kruach's hands. Then he turned and went down over the tumbled stones. The shimmering darkness brooded still over the distant tower. Underneath the ice the elfin city still spread downward. The Shining Ones would rebuild their bridges in the shaft, and go on as they had before, dreaming their cold dreams of ancient power. But they would not go out through the gates of death. Ban Kruach, in his rusty mail, was still lord of the pass, the warder of the Norlands. Stark said to the others, Tell the story in Kushat. Tell it through the Norlands, the story of Ban Kruach, and why he guards the gates of death. Men have forgotten and they should not forget. They went out of the valley then, the two men and the woman. They did not speak again, and the way out through the pass seemed endless. Some of Chara's chieftains met them at the mouth of the pass above Kushat. They had waited there, ashamed to return to the city without her, but not daring to go back into the pass again. They had seen the creatures of the valley, and they were still afraid. They gave mounts to the three. They themselves walked behind Chara, and their heads were low with shame. They came to Kushat through the riven gate, and Stark went with Chara to the king's city, where she made Balin follow too. Your sister is there, she said. I have had her cared for. The city was quiet, with the sullen apathy that follows after battle. The men of Mech cheered Chara in the streets. She rode proudly but Stark saw that her face was gaunt and strained. He too was marked deep by what he had seen and done beyond the gates of death. They went up into the castle. Thanis took Balin into her arms and wept. She had lost her first wild fury, and she could look at Chara now with a restrained hatred that had a tinge almost of admiration. You fought for Kushat, she said, unwillingly, when she had heard the story. For that, at least, I can't thank you. She went to Stark then and looked up at him. 
who shot and my brother's life she kissed him and there were tears on her lips but she turned to chara with a bitter smile no one can hold him any more than the wind can be held you will learn that she went out then with balin and left stark and chara alone in the chambers of the king chara said the little one is very shrewd she unbuckled the hauberk and let it fall standing slim in her tunic of black leather and walked to the tall windows that looked out upon the mountains she leaned her head wearily against the stone an evil day an evil deed and now i have kushat to govern with no reward of power from beyond the gates of death how man can be misled stark poured wine from the flagon and brought it to her she looked at him over the rim of the cup with a certain wry amusement the little one is shrewd and she is right i don't know that i can be as wise as she will you stay with me stark or will you go he did not answer at once and she asked him what hunger drives you stark it is not conquest as it was with me what are you looking for that you cannot find he thought back across the years back to the beginning to the boy in chaka who had once been happy with old one and little tika in the blaze and thunder and bitter frosts of a valley in the twilight belt of mercury he remembered how all that had ended under the guns of the miners the men who were his own kind he shook his head i don't know it doesn't matter he took her between his two hands feeling the strength and the splendor of her and it was oddly difficult to find words i want to stay chara now this minute i could promise that i would stay forever but i know myself you belong here you will make kushat your own i don't some day i will go chara nodded my neck also was not made for chains and one country was too little to hold me very well stark let it be so she smiled and let the wine cup fall end of chapter nine recording by thomas copeland end of black amazon of mars by lee douglas brackett